Hello, wrestling fans, and welcome to Shut Up and Wrestle, an old-school wrestling podcast about good conversation and great stories. I am your host, Brian R. Solomon, and this is the 10th episode of Shut Up and Wrestle. Somehow and some way, we've survived 10 episodes. Uh, Let's see if we could keep the rally going and um, the hits just keep on coming. I'm going to talk about our our guest today in a minute, somebody from uh, the world of Midwest wrestling, particularly Indianapolis wrestling history. Uh, If that is your bag, this is going to be the show for you. But before we get to that, uh, I want to talk about a few things, as always, uh, that are catching my eye and things that I've been up to. First of all, uh, um, before I talk about my book, I want to talk about a new book from a great friend of mine and a former uh, recent guest on Shut Up and Wrestle. Keith Elliott Greenberg. And by the way, if you haven't heard his episode, you should go back and find it. I believe it is number three, episode three. But Keith has a book that's going to be coming out in the fall, uh, a fascinating topic, if uh, especially if you're into contemporary, contemporary wrestling. And it's called Follow the Buzzards, Pro Wrestling in the Age of COVID-19. And it's all about uh, really kind of looking back at how COVID affected the pro wrestling business and um, what how it changed the pro wrestling business. I'm sure all of us who lived through that and uh, have seen really the impact that it has had on that business. So Keith's book is tackling that topic. It will be out in October, but I've been informed that you can pre-order it now. So that's a book that you might want to pre-order. And speaking of pre-order, of course, this is the last week that I'm going to be talking about pre-orders for uh, Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original Sheik, my biography of the original Sheik, Ed Farhat. And the reason it's the last week I'm going to be talking about it is the book comes out next week, right, as you're listening to this, or it could be this week. The book comes out April 12th, Tuesday, April 12th. So get those pre-orders in now. I've actually been hearing from some people that they've been getting their books. So um, I think copies have been trickling out. Some of those pre-order copies possibly have been trickling out. So if you want to be one of those people, pre-order the book. And certainly once it's out on the 12th, um, order that book and get it delivered right to your door, Amazon.com or Barnes & Noble, wherever you order books. Uh, That'll be the place to get it. And if you're, uh, by the way, if you're interested in, potentially autographed copies of Blood and Fire. Uh, I do not flatter myself, but if there are folks out there that actually would want such a thing, I am going to be making autographed copies available for sale uh, once I get my hands on some, which I have not yet. So once I start getting my own copies in, I will be talking about autographed copies if, if people would be interested in buying them. So so keep listening in the weeks to come for that. want to mention... The May issue of Pro Wrestling Illustrated, which is out now, uh, available now, and it's got Kazuchika Okada on the cover, 
And um, inside, you will find a couple of great columns that I contributed. One is my uh, lockup column, which is all about managers in wrestling and the role of the manager and why it's so important. And my other column, very pertinent to our uh, purposes here on Shut Up and Wrestle, is my column called The Way It Was, my old school vintage wrestling column, in which in this month's issue, I talk about one of my favorite eras of pro wrestling, early 90s WCW. So if that's your thing, Vader, the Dangerous Alliance, uh, all that kind of good stuff, then you might want to pick that up. And you can find it on newsstands or supermarkets and things. Or if you want to order it online, go to getpwi.com for Pro Wrestling Illustrated and all back issues as well. Digital and print copies available. Uh, all right, so let's get to our guest now. Let, let's cut to the chase here. Last week, of course, we were in Montreal talking to Bertrand Hébert about Montreal and Quebec wrestling history. And this week, we are headed south to Indianapolis. So uh, we're going to be talking about Dick the Bruiser and the WWA and the whole history of Indianapolis wrestling, really, with a particular focus on uh, 60s, 70s, 80s. If that is uh, of your particular interest, Take a listen. And I want to say, too, even if it's an area that you're not all that familiar with, you know, and, and something maybe maybe you're not from that part of the country or or you're younger and, and it wasn't something you remember or have heard much about. Even more so, I say to you, keep an open mind and take a listen, because these conversations are very educational uh, and, and certainly to me as well. So uh, and I, I'm talking about in this particular case, my guest being Dave Dynasty, who is a podcaster and a wrestling historian who specializes in, he, he covers a lot of wrestling history. I talk about it here in the interview, but um, his specialty and his particular area of interest is um, Indianapolis wrestling. So uh, without further ado, then let us go to the interview and conversation with Dave Dynasty right now. Okay, so right now, I'd really like to welcome to Shut Up and Wrestle somebody that I am really glad. He's one of those people that I got to know and I got to be familiar with through the uh, so-called internet wrestling community, the online wrestling world and social media, which you often hear so many bad things about. But there's good things about it, too, because you can meet great like-minded people. And Dave Dynasty is one of those people. Um, you probably know him as Nostalgic Dave Dynasty on social media, and he is the host and the presenter of a plethora of podcasts. He's the host of Wrestling Nostalgia Podcast, the This Is Extreme Podcast. Um, he's also got other great ones on there. There's the Stampede Wrestling Podcast, Ring-A-Ding-Dong Dandy. I said that without making a single mistake. And the Ontario Wildman podcast, among others. Um, you can find him on YouTube. But I am, I am pleased to have him here today, we're going to talk about some topics that are near and dear to my heart. A fellow fanatic of classic old school wrestling, Mr. Dave Dynasty. Yeah, thank you. I feel like if you say ring a ding dong dandy, you almost have to make mistakes <laughs> to get that, that, that proper Ed Whalen uh, vibe on it. I was going to say that's an Ed Whalen thing, right? Yeah, sort of like yeah. uh, what was the other one in the meantime and in between time? Uh, right? he, he had a slew of them. <laughs> yeah. He's a, so were you, uh, um, let's get a, a feel for this now, because it's interesting how these different podcasts that you've got going are really in kind of very different areas of, of wrestling. So mm -hmm. where did you actually grow up and what was the wrestling that you knew and were a fan of? I was born and raised in Columbus, Indiana, which is 
is, is as central in Indiana as you can get. It is an hour from Indy, an hour from Louisville, an hour from Cincinnati. It is right there uh, in central Indiana. So, and I grew up, I grew up on the tail end of Bruiser's wrestling in the WWA. But by the time I got into wrestling, the, the, the boom was starting. Hmm. And uh, it was the early 80s when I started watching wrestling. So it was the tail end of the territories. But Bruiser still had TV in Indiana. Um, and, and, and WWE was starting, starting to grow. And then everything exploded. So, Right. And I just want to point out, too, because I never know sort of the age groups and the knowledge levels of people that listen. I've learned as a high school English teacher never to take anybody's knowledge base for granted. So just to be clear, <laughs> we're talking about Dick the Bruiser, of course, the world's yes. most dangerous wrestler and right. his territory, which was the World Wrestling. Was it World Wrestling Association? Association. Yeah. OK. I always I feel like between that and the uh, and the California WWA, there's always kind of some confusion. Yeah. And, well, and there's also the uh, I believe there's a Lucha WWA. Right. That, uh, yeah. That ran with Bill Moskaros and all them. So, yeah, pretty common initials. Now, but I yeah, had heard. Yeah, go on. I was just going to say, yeah, it's association for Bruiser. Now, I had heard that there was an actual connection there. And I think I actually even mentioned it in, in the Sheik book where Bruiser basically was was working out in California. He was working for Mike Lavelle and Cal Eaton and them. And then he came back home and decided he was basically going to just copy the name that they were using. And, and, and he had been the WWA world champion out there. And so he yep. kind of used that right as a, as a way um, in kayfabe to establish his world championship status in the Indiana area. Right. Yep. That is exactly right. He, yeah, he beat Blassie, uh, Fred Blassie for the uh, WWA Los Angeles title. And uh, it was all, it was in the Indianapolis papers where he brought it back and, you know, they proclaimed bruiser, you know, as a world champion, uh, a nice picture with the little, the small belt, that little, it's hard to describe. It's not much of a belt in today's sense, but uh, mm -hmm. the old school belt. And uh, yeah, he used that and officially recognized that as, as uh, him and Wilbur Snyder's first champion uh, in their newly formed WWA. I'm glad you mentioned the belt thing. Cause I, I feel like a lot of times there'll be pictures online of, of great old world champions and things. And, and younger fans will make fun of the size of the belt. And there's that infamous picture of Nick Bockwinkle, Nick Bockwinkle and Luthez together. And Bockwinkle has that gigantic AWA belt. And Lou has, you know, his very traditional little kind of ribbon belt from, from like yeah. the 40s. I think that it was really, it wasn't until maybe the 60s and 70s that those belt medallions started getting really big. But I mean, Traditionally, they were a lot smaller. Yeah, yeah, they were. And I mean, when I po I post a lot of pictures of uh, you know, especially WWE, you know, this day in history, and title changes, and it's it's odd on social media. You get a lot of feedback on these on the title belts, and a lot of people talking about how cheap they look and how mm. you know ugly they are, and so to speak. But it, it it was a different world. You couldn't, you know, there wasn't a half a dozen belt makers out there. And these guys, you know, these promoters didn't feel the need to invest a ton of money into these belts that were going to get thrown away around and travel. So they, you know, they had these made at trophy shops and, and things like that. So they, they were very cheaply made. Uh, but to me, they have, I mean, there's a charm about them and, and of the time. And it's you know very reflective of, of those days. But the, definitely, the, yeah. Yeah. The belt that Bruiser brought initially brought from Los Angeles very much was modeled after that Luthez type belt that you spoke of it. It looked very similar to that. Um, and he did go back to L.A. and drop the title back there. 
while still, you know, carrying on his lineage here in, or in Indiana. So, but uh, yeah, it was very similar to that Luthez belt is the belt he won from Blassie. Right. Which was kind of the, you know, because they, they started out, I mean, wrestling and boxing, the belts were literally belts. I mean, they, they, yep. it, it yep. was really kind of a trophy thing. And um, especially like the really old ones, like Strangler Lewis's belt. And when you see Joe Stecker's belt and things like that, they are, it, it's basically like a big kind of belt that you might wear to hold your pants up, you know? And then as the years went on, it's that thing of you, you always want to top what's come before you. And now we're at the point where the belts are so huge that it's like yeah. you're carrying it. It looks like you're wearing a, a car door or something on you. Yeah. But um, yeah. Bruiser didn't invest a lot in his title belts. Uh, <laughs> he, they had one made in the trophy shop, you know, and you know, like I think it was 65 is when they actually, uh, and I believe the trophy shop still in Indianapolis. I've tried to reach out to him. But I've not gotten any response, but I do believe they still do some work. Um, cause I, I'd like to know if they have by chance, any records or anything, I slim, but I'm going to try. Um, they use that belt, that same belt more or less up until the very end in 89. You know, I think they yeah. had to re re, uh, you know, use a uh, replace of parts here and there, but it was, it was a pretty much the exact same title belt the entire way through. Now, Bruiser's territory is interesting uh, for people that don't know. It, it's uh, basically Indiana. It, were there other states that it that it bled into? Um, nope, not really. He, <laughs> but they were, were affiliated with the AWA as well, right? Kind of, sort of. Yeah, in Chicago, yeah. Uh, Vern Gundy, uh, Snyder, Wilbur Snyder, and Bruiser were all co-owners in Chicago together. So it was kind of almost independent of the AWA and WWA, but it had a nice mix of the two. But in Chicago, most of the time, you saw the presentation of the AWA titles. Um, you didn't see a lot of the WWA titles up there. Now, I mean, of course, Bruiser, he, he, he had claim to Louisville, he said, when he first started. And he kind of shook down Jerry Jarrett for some money when Jarrett, because, you know, Louisville was dark for a long time. And when Jarrett tried to run there, you know, Bruiser <laughs> shook him down for money. And, uh, Jarrett did for a while pay pay for it and then eventually just said well, this is ridiculous and just quit paying him but right. uh, yeah he, he pretty much ran exclusively in Indiana uh, on his own Bruiser's sense of you know what was fair or earned I think was maybe a little shady at times because <laughs> like I yeah. like I wrote about in the in the Sheik book you know the territory that he had was based and he and Wilbur Snyder had was basically basically the Southern half of a territory that used to belong to Jim Barnett and Johnny Doyle with the Northern half being what the Sheik got in Michigan and Ohio. But the difference being the Sheik paid for it. And like I've said before, I mean, the legality of that is questionable anyway, but the Sheik, you know, paid for it It, it, within the wrestling industry, the so-called right way to do it. And Bruiser just took it, you know, by force and then tried to take the whole thing. Yeah, it did. And Bruce, there's a there's always that misconception of that because people always say that Snyder and Bruiser bought from Barnett, and they didn't. They they actually started running prior to Barnett leaving the area. There was both of them were running in Indianapolis for a while for several right. months before Barnett went to. I believe it's probably when he went to Australia. I would assume. Yes, sixty um, four. Yeah. So uh, people have always said that oh, he purchased that portion of the territory from. There was no purchasing involved. He no. just went in there and said, I'm the star. I'm going to run shows. We're going to do this. And they ran opposition uh, for several months. 
And and it's tough. You know, the wrestling world is so weird because when you hear about these so-called outlaw promotions and things, you have to understand outside the wrestling bubble, there's nothing wrong with what they're doing. I mean, that's capitalism. That's free enterprise. You're providing an alternative. You're you're the competition. But of course, in the wrestling world, especially back then, there were those very designated lines that you didn't cross. And I think that sometimes those outlaw promoters, and I, I only use that word outlaw because that's what they were called, like the Pafos and people like that. I think they benefited from the fact that you couldn't really go into a court of law like and say, oh, this guy stole my territory because there's no legal basis for that. I mean, that's that's monopoly. If anything, if you tried to say that, you'd be the bad guy, not the not the guy trying to move in on your territory. Yep, that's right. I mean, yeah, Bruiser and Snyder, they never had any association with the NWA. Uh, they were never an affiliate or a member. Although, you know, Bruiser was a huge star in St. Louis, uh, you know, the kind of the hotbed for the NWA for a while. But they just Bruiser was not going to pay anybody to be part of an affiliation that wasn't going to help him. Right. Uh, Bruiser wasn't about giving his money away for, for something he didn't feel needed. That's the other thing, too. I, I've heard and read that he was notoriously, I guess the word cheap might come into play. I might say thrifty, <laughs> careful with his money. Yes, he was. Um, well, I mean, it depends on some people say no, but the, the typically the people that say no are the people who pretty much primarily only wrestled in his area. And didn't have, you know, they didn't expand beyond or didn't have that big of a future. You have a guy like Bobby Heenan who was clearly going places. And yeah, he said that, uh, yeah, <laughs> Bruiser didn't pay anything. Yeah. And um, and that's why he moved on. So you, you probably know this because, you know, you're the WWA guy. But um, the thing with Heenan was always so weird to me because I always remember hearing and seeing that, you know, Dick the Bruiser, the subject of Dick the Bruiser, was a big soft uh, um, sore spot for Heenan. Like if you, like you couldn't really bring it up to him if you were interviewing him. Like he would just did not want to talk about him. Like he clearly had a lot of disdain for him. It seemed like a really personal grudge. Uh, he did, yeah. I mean, but if you look at it from Heenan's perspective, I mean, Bobby Heenan was he was the heel to to Bruiser's face. That was you know the there was a rotating cast in the. That, that Heenan managed a lot of times, but Heenan was the guy that went in there and would bump like crazy and bleed like crazy for Bruiser and get the crowd, you know, and would draw and, and pop the crowd. And Heenan was getting offers, you know, I mean, AWA wanted him to come make more appearances. He was, you know, Georgia it had an interest and, and Bruiser, yeah, Bruiser never paid him more. I mean, there was no, to my knowledge, there was no pay raise involved. You know, it was, he did not view Bobby Heenan as an integral part of his organization like Heenan was. And, uh, you know, Bruiser just, he had that, I think he had that perspective on managers that they were replaceable. I mean, he had a, a, an ever rotating cast of managers over the years. And um, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I mean, he, cre you know, he helped create Bobby Heenan. He, he gave him the opportunity and, and gave him the name. Right. Um, from Bobby Davis. Yeah. 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 I mean, it was, <laughs> it was just this odd thing that Heenan never understood, you know, he, his name's Raymond. And then all of a sudden one day Bruiser just said, Oh, you're going to be Bobby Heenan. And then right. the best of his knowledge, it was just because, in Dick the Bruiser's mind, you know, because of Bobby Davis, a manager should be named Bobby. He, he, it's what he wanted. So, I, I mean, and it's weird to say that, but there was probably no more thought than that in Dick the Bruiser's mind. It's just, oh, you know, you can't be, you know, we can't be Raymond. You're going to be Bobby. Yeah. He, you know, he's interesting to me because I'm talking about 
Bruiser, because I, um, of course, he's a major player in the story of the Sheik. So in the process of writing my book, I did a lot of research on him. And the impression I got, I was very surprised in learning about his background and his life, because he seems to me like, okay, so he had this persona, which was very similar to the Crushers, where He's this working class bar brawler. You know, you heard his, his voice, for God's sake. I mean, just incredibly intimidating football player, tough guy. But and I'm not saying he wasn't those things, but he also seemed to have come from privilege and money. Like, you know, he, he went to college. He had a very sophisticated degree. He he, he, he came from a family that had money, which might have been why he was so you know, smart with his money, but, you know, very much in contradiction to the kind of like uh, beer barrel polka image that he had, yeah. I think. Yeah, he did. I mean, his mom was a very prominent member of uh, the Democratic Party in Indiana. And uh, if you go, I'm not sure where it's or that, that's some Indianapolis State Museum or somewhere, there's there a lot of her records mm. and, and, and things are there as part of their, dis, uh, you know, their display and their, their archives. And, uh, it's because she was so prominent with the democratic party and yeah, they, they were, um, they were definitely an upper-class family bruiser, you know, yeah, he was college educated. Well, I don't know whether he finished college, but, uh, but he, you know, and he didn't, you know, and had the tryouts with the pro football and everything else, but he, yeah, he wasn't exactly your blue collar working class kind of guy, but it, that's, you know, the, the image he portrayed and how he came across and, right. and, and you know, that's how people related to him. Now he did like to drink beer, but <laughs> But his beer of choice was actually a Japanese beer, which oh, that's is great. That is yeah, fantastic. Even, yeah, even more unique. So <laughs> I always point to to me like the classic uh, example is Crusher and Bruiser, where when people say they don't have wrestlers like this anymore, like those are, those are the guys that I that I always point to, and I'm like, there's no Dick the Bruiser, there's no Crusher, and a lot of times when I'm watching something currently in, in wrestling that is really bugging me and just getting on my last nerve. And I, I'm just so annoyed watching it. I fantasize in my head about Dick, the bruiser and the crusher, just hitting the ring and just annihilating, you know, whoever yeah. is in the ring doing this stupid nonsense. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't think they would sell a lot of the maneuvers, no. because, you know, <laughs> they, they didn't sell much then. So, right. That's true. And he, he's also, um, at, you know, as a promoter, He's an interesting figure because, like you said, not really affiliated. You know, he's not part of the NWA. He has a partnership in Chicago with Vern Gagne, but he has his own thing going on. He has his own, you know, supposed world championship at a time when there really weren't that many in wrestling. There was like the big three, you know, and he lasted so long. I mean, even though it was a shadow of what it used to be, but. I mean, all the way to the end of the 80s, even like when 90 percent of the territories were gone, he was still I mean, yeah, he was running, you know, used car lots. But I mean, he, he was still running. Yeah, he, he was. I mean, they were the WWE was a huge promotion in the 70s. They were drawing outrageous, you know, crowds. And they were I mean, when Market Square Arena opened in Indianapolis and the Pacers were playing there and uh, Bruiser was running shows there and um and, you know, and then they were running, you know, at the armory and at the fairgrounds and, and drawing these huge numbers. And, uh, and everybody came through Indianapolis. And um, a lot, you know, a lot of people talk, there, there's all these stories about Bruiser's promotion and, and everybody always talks about how it aged out and, and the talent aged out. And 
well, there is a kernel of truth there <laughs> because even up into the eighties, he was still using Moose Cholock and Bobo Brazil and, and guys like that who were clearly well past their prime, but being a kid in that time, these guys were still draws to me and they were still, you know, if it, I, I know Dick, the bruiser was old, but in my eyes, I didn't see that. I didn't see the age as a kid. It was, you know, it was, it was Dick, the bruiser and he had this godlike status and everybody had a Dick, the bruiser story. And, and it was still, he was still an attraction. So I, I think the aged out term, I think it's an odd, odd use of that term. I think it's probably because, you know, there's so many parallels with big time wrestling in Detroit and, and where you see, I think the bigger issue, it's not even so much the age because, because I think about that, but I think it's the lack of variety where you kept seeing the same people, the same feuds. Cause I know that was the issue with cheeks territory. It was, you know, the same matches and not a lot of new blood, especially at the top. I don't like you, like you were saying, I don't know if people cared so much about the age. Like I, I really feel like, like with so many other things, there wasn't as much of an emphasis on youth or an expectation of youth. And that, that started to change obviously with the WWF and the national expansion and the emphasis on appearance and everything. But there wasn't, just like in music or movies or anything else, it wasn't as much of a youth culture. So I think people probably were willing to forgive the age part of it. Yeah. And that's true. But I think uh, in a lot of ways, Bruiser's he's very much, he only worked with the guys he knew he could trust and that, that, and you know, he, he would put titles on some younger guys that were his you know son-in-laws like a Spike Huber or whatever else. And then he would get burnt when Spike would take off and leave his daughter and, and go to Memphis and things like that. So I think Bruiser was just very distrusting on who he used. And he knew these guys he'd used for 20 years and he trusted them and knew they would be there and do what he wanted. And, and I, I think there was just some of that. And in his mind, he was still making money. So why change? Yeah. And there's, there's the whole uh, classic deal there where the thinking is if you, if you use your family as top stars or put titles on your family, well, you don't have to worry about them leaving and leaving you high and dry and going to another territory or whatever. But even that isn't always true, you know, yep. but sometimes that's why the promoters would, if they were wrestler promoters, they would keep the titles on themselves because they knew at least they could trust themselves. They were, they weren't going yeah. anywhere. So, yeah. And, and Bruiser did. I mean, he was a WWE champion. I don't know, 13, 15 times, something like that. Hmm. But, uh, but, you know, and part of that, yes, is, you know, he could trust himself. He was the attraction. But I, I think Bruiser did have an eye as far as the championship and talking about that. I, I think he did have an eye on the on the chase. And he would like when a guy like a, a Bruiser Brody would come in, you know, he wanted to make sure to get, you know, three, you know, two or three matches out of it with him and, and Bruiser or Brody. And uh, right. so he would drop the title and then realize, you know, it would draw with him trying to chase to get it back. And. So I, I think there was, you know, he did a lot of that with the championship too. He, I think he understood the, the, the draw of the chase. Was that one of the territories where Brody had to call himself King Kong because of the whole bruiser thing, or did they let him keep the name? No. Yeah. He was King Kong. King they Kong actually, Brody. Yeah, yeah. They actually had a match where it was supposed to be a battle for the name or at the end, <laughs> the end and all that. But yeah, he was always billed as King Kong Brody in Indianapolis. Right. See, I don't know. I, I always would wonder what would happen then if, 
if Angelo Mosca came to town, you know, then he'd have to pick like an entirely different name. <laughs> he'd have yeah. to pick something else. Yeah. But, um, I don't, I don't know if Bruiser would care too much about that, but he, <laughs> he just was not going to allow another Bruiser in his territory. Right. So. And I think in, in, they did that in St. Louis as well, because yep. much Nick was close with Bruiser. And that was another interesting thing. You talk about the politics back then. So, uh, and I'm writing about this in the book. It's in there where you've got Sheik, who is a dues-paying member of the NWA. He is the Detroit and you know representative, or that whole area, Southern Ontario, and everything. And he is at war with Dick the Bruiser, who is not an NWA member, who is in fact an outlaw of the NWA. And you've got Muchnick, who's the president of the NWA, in this really weird position where um, he's the president of the NWA. He's very good friends with Bruiser. He likes to use Bruiser. And to be honest, he's actually not that high in opinion. His opinion of the Sheik, not very high, doesn't like him very much, doesn't get along with him. So you get this weird thing where he's actually using Dick the Bruiser in St. Louis for a while, while the war is going on until the Sheik had to speak up and say, and, you know, I don't, why are you using my this guy that's trying to put me out of business and so it almost seems like to save face uh much nick had to stop using him for a while at least until the war was over yeah yeah that's very true i mean and you know i don't i mean i haven't really i don't really dive into the war in detroit but i believe i mean you can correct me if i'm wrong i believe they were both drawing pretty well during this war i mean yes yeah i don't even so it was it was peculiar because i don't i and i don't even know at the end, what happened? Did they just say, oh, we could make more money together? And Well, what happened was it, they were drawing, but here, here's the thing. Um, there never was, it went on for about three years. And, right. but the thing about it was the Sheik always had a comfortable lead. Um, they were kind of neck and neck. There would be shows, but anytime they ran against each other, if they were, if the Sheik is at Kobo and Bruiser's at Olympia, they both did okay, which is amazing when you think about it now. There'd be like 25,000 people in the city of Detroit on one night that were going to see wrestling in multiple right. places. But the Sheik always outdrew, almost always. There were a handful of shows where Bruiser outdrew. Um, but the, the difference was the reason it went on that it was such a hot war was that bruiser just wouldn't give up. He just wouldn't go away. There were a lot of promoters that would have, after a few shows would have said, all right, this isn't worth it. But he just kept coming back for years um, until finally. And the the story that I got from a few sources, including Eddie jr. Was that um, the Sheik started buying up TV in Chicago and in Indiana and places where, and they started moving in on Vern Gagne's territory, not venue wise, but TV wise. And Gagne kind of went to Dick the Bruiser and was like, you need to get your house in order because we can't <laughs> tolerate this. And Bruiser, I don't know why he didn't think of doing that sooner, but then Bruiser basically got on the phone with them and said, well, you, you can't do this. You can't run TV. You're not even running, you know, you're not even running the arenas out here. You can't put your show on TV. And they said, okay, well, I'll take it off your TV if you stop running in my towns. <laughs> and that was the deal that they finally made. And then they started working together. Yep. Well, I see. Yeah, I know. Cause I know after that, 
I'm pretty sure she came in Indianapolis and and worked. Uh, he did. Yeah, and worked the. Did he? I believe he worked the cage match at Market Square Arena. Yeah, against yeah. Bruiser. And it's that to me is one of those holy grails. I'd love to have footage of that match. There's um, a photo from it in the book. Yeah. Oh, there is, is there? Yeah. Yeah, there. I is. know. I, I've talked to you know several guys over the years, like John Lawson, who did a newsletter and was uh, his family was involved in WWE in their Terre Haute shows, and he was at that show. Uh, and I know he said that, uh, and I spoke with him before a couple of rows behind him was, you know, Jim Cornette was there at that show. And I'm like I, that, ma- I mean, and it's probably one of those matches that if I saw it, it would be like, oh, that, that was it. it. It might disappoint what I built up in my head, but right. uh, the thought of, you know, Bruiser and Sheik cage match at Market Square Arena in Indianapolis is that, that's a, that's a big deal to me. Yeah. You know, uh, that came up when I was on um, the Jim Cornette experience that, you know, little Jimmy Cornette was there with his mom in the, in the crowd <laughs> for that. And uh, I told him that we, we, yeah, we got a picture. I think it might be one of Brian Bucantis's photos, I think. Yeah. Probably. And it's in there, but see the, the issue with their feud when they finally feuded was you have this great built-in feud where these guys were, real business rivals and now they're working together but neither guy ever wanted to lose to anybody so so what do you do it's and and so just from a results point of view it was kind of unsatisfying there was never a clear-cut winner yep yeah yeah you're never gonna get (laughs) you're never gonna get either of them to to concede on that (laughs) and and the best part was at least the sheik had the wherewithal when bruiser would come into detroit that bruiser was the face and Sheik was the heel. He didn't go as far as to make himself the face, but he still wouldn't lay down for him. I mean, they basically did, they would do tag team matches where the other guys would take the fall or there would be a DQ or a count out, or they do. I think they may have even had uh, a couple of cage matches where, they didn't do the pin. They would do the win by escaping the cage, which back then, ah. you know, back then, though, they called it the Blassie cage. It was a it was basically considered a cop out because you would do that as a way so you wouldn't have to have anybody get pinned. Right. Yeah, I know. I, I do. I don't remember the time. I know they also had a tag match at one point where uh, Heenan teamed with Bruiser where they had teased that that Heenan had turned face. And then I believe he he turned on Bruiser in the match, and I, I believe he maybe did he team with Sheik or was just in Sheik's corner for a match or two there in was, Indianapolis. Uh, there was a show at Comiskey. A sh- uh, it was uh, where it was Sheik and Bobby Heenan against uh, Bobo Brazil, and I am blanking on who Bobo's partner was. Um, it might have been it might have been Dick the Bruiser, but. I remember that match keenly because there is video of that show. There's footage mm. of it. And if you ever see it, um, Heenan, of course, is bleeding like a pig. And yeah. they get they lose the match, of course. Bobby Heenan, I think, takes the fall from Bobo. And they go back to the locker room and the camera follows them, which I feel like was kind of rare in those days. So the camera's back there with them. They're in the locker room, still in character. The Sheik starts licking the blood <laughs> off of Bobby Heenan's face. And you can see Heenan like completely breaking character and being absolutely disgusted. Just to, like he can't, he can't 
he has to let his guard down because he's so grossed out that this guy is licking the blood off his face. It's it's horrible to watch. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but uh, oh, you know what I want to mention too because. Uh, I, I promised myself I wouldn't forget this because we're, when we're talking about Indianapolis and, and Dick the Bruiser, but um, for people that aren't aware, and I became aware to the point where I tried to get a copy of my book into his hands, but uh, growing up in Indiana, a huge fan of Dick the Bruiser and of WWA wrestling was Dave Letterman, right? Ab- yes, absolutely. Bruiser, yeah, Bruiser was on Letterman's show in uh, before, and yeah, Letterman was a huge fan, very intimidated. Um that's the reason his his house band was always called the world's most dangerous band. Uh, that was a nod to, to Bruiser being the world's most dangerous wrestler. Um, but yeah, uh, he was born in Indianapolis. I believe born in Indianapolis, but he was went to Ball State up in Muncie and graduated from there. And yeah, he was a a, a born and raised Dick the Bruiser fan, WWA fan uh, over the years. That's great. And, you know, and I had to imagine, even though I don't I I didn't know it for a fact, but I mean, if you're growing up in that era, in that place, my thinking was he had to be well aware of the chic. And so I want I was really trying to get my book into his hands and maybe get some type of a review or a comment or something. But alas, I was unsuccessful in my attempts. But if Dave Letterman is listening right now, there is. There is a copy of the manuscript in digital form in your inbox, Dave, <laughs> or, or your agent's inbox, I believe. And, and you can still read it. It's not too late. So there you go. Fingers crossed. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> uh, but yeah, but I, I, I often wondered if, you know, because Letterman growing up a wrestling fan, if that was probably what made him more open to, you know, doing that famous segment with jerry lawler yeah. and andy kaufman right i i would think i mean you'd have to imagine yeah i mean he had, had to have had an appreciation for wrestling so um and i'm sure he was probably a fan of andy kaufman so it was kind of you know hitting both strikes there but uh i mean yeah i would there was a lot of wrestlers that made appearances on letterman show over the years so i would think I, again i don't know the logistics of who reached out to who with the the lawler lawler kaufman letterman thing uh, but I, I feel like that would have to have played into why he was so open to being a part of it. Right. And I know that, you know, uh, so those were the days when Dave was still on NBC on a late night mm-hmm. show. And of course, Andy Kaufman had a relationship with NBC because of right. Saturday night live. And I think I want to say even taxi was on NBC, but I'm not sure. So I, I imagine that that was the connection where it was Probably. through Andy Kaufman, but I'm sure that once, letterman heard that it was something wrestling related i I could only imagine that his interest probably got peaked like i i can't imagine johnny carson doing a thing like that (laughs) yeah i wonder i mean i wonder how familiar letterman would have been with lawler at that time because i like where i where i was in southern indiana we got you know the memphis wrestling out of louisville so we could we could see it but i don't know i don't know if he might have been a little far north to be picking that up so yeah and i mean because lawler was already red hot even by the mid 70s so i mean right. it's possible it's possible yeah. dave would have i think been in his stand-up comedian and weatherman days at that point <laughs> who knows if he was if he was even still watching yeah but uh yeah that's really fascinating and um dick the, now i've never seen the segment that where dick the bruiser was on that show have you have you actually seen that uh, no i i i've heard about it and, and again this could just be myth and, and legend. 
Right. And, and people connecting, you know, connecting the two because of Letterman's fandom uh, when he was younger. Uh, but I've always heard, yes, that he was on there very early in the days um, hmm. and that well, there was uh, an intimidation factor from Letterman. But again, I've never se- I've not I mean, I've not personally seen it, so it, it could just be a, a myth. Well, if anybody, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm sure I could easily do uh, a web search, but uh, if, if people are listening and they have seen it and they know of it and they know where to find it, they could definitely send it my way. But I always get a kick out of um, wrestler talk show appearances from that era because they would generally kind of still be in character or they weren't yeah. going to break, you know, favorite like i love seeing andre the giant on the tonight show or, or hulk hogan on the tonight show and things like that i'm always i'm, I'm always so interested to see those those worlds collide yeah. well, and one thing i have that i've always been a search for uh i've always searched for is and not television but a radio appearance that dick the bruiser did um and it would have been in the 80s but they said that he he did this radio appearance and did the night before christmas no uh, on air. Yeah. And, and I know for a fact that it occurred because I have seen television or newspaper listings for this, Oh man! but, uh, and I've tried for years that hoping, I mean, I've, I've reached out to anybody I can, I can track down for any information to, to try to continue on my search, but I've not <laughs> been able to find it, but I, I would love to hear bruiser <laughs> doing the, the night before Christmas and his, you know, his voice, of course, anybody that knows him, um, my understanding, right. Was that it was the result of, of football injuries, right? Uh, yeah. Kind that's of what they've, what they've always said. Yeah. I think that, and that's also what happened to Brian Pillman, isn't it? Where he got that raspy voice from, you know, getting his voice box uh, crushed or whatever. Well, I, yeah, I believe Pillman had, there was something genetic. I think there was something he was born with because I've always heard he had a lot of uh, many, many operations as a young child um, is whatever. I, so I think there was something just physically genetic or something he was born with right. that affected him. And then, yeah, he might have had some issues later that uh, that it kind of made it worse. But uh, I believe there were, they, they talked about when he was a child there was he had this slew of surgeries and, and had to go these long periods of time without speaking and, and things like that. From uh, what I understand, right? You know, now that you mention it, I do remember. It's kind of funny now, but Jr. in WCW would mention that almost every single time that Pillman was wrestling, yeah, <laughs> that yeah. about that surgery, but Bruiser. I mean, his voice was money. Let's just put it that way. When you have a voice like that and you look like that, I mean, he was like, yep. he, he was like a living cartoon character of a pro wrestler. Yeah, he was. And then that was, that was his voice. There was no put on, uh, no acting involved with that. That, that was his voice. And, uh, but there, there's all kinds of <laughs> tales from his football days of him getting kicked out of the NFL for hitting a coach with a helmet and things like that. And typically those are, have been debunked at those those just weren't true, but um, yeah, there was some form to all our knowledge that some form of an injury that caused the, that, that voice uh, mm. while playing football. And it, you know, it's one of those things where, I mean, obviously I, I didn't start watching wrestling till the eighties and, but you know, I've done so much research and I absorb as much as I could learn. And I have been for 30 years now. And the interesting thing to me is whenever I would read and learn about, you know, the tag team of uh, Crusher and Bruiser, right? It, it really seems to me like you look at how incredibly dominant they were. And I mean, I think don't don't hold me to this, but I think that they, they might still be the longest reigning 
world tag team champions ever anywhere. I mean, from their reigns in the AWA and, and other places, it, it feels like they were very much of their time because I, I think, I don't know if you could pull off something like that today. And now everybody's so obsessed with, you know, work rate and, and, and how fast you are. And I don't know if, if you could have a team like that where back then they just, people just believed in them and were in awe of them. And the act had so uh, had such legs. Yeah. Well, much less, I don't know if a guy like Crusher could, uh, could pull off saying he was a fan of polkas in this day and age <laughs> that's what i mean but that was all it was so much of its time where yeah you you get you know they reflected their audience i mean look i think the reason they were so hot was there were a lot of people watching at home who basically were like them who looked like them who talked like them who acted like them and, and they yeah. liked seeing that on tv yeah you know and, and, from, and from what i understand and again i could be wrong too I, I believe the crusher for all his beer drinking image. I heard he was not a fan of, of beer. It wine was more his choice. You gotta so, be kidding. That <laughs> is amazing. Heard. That but is, I, <laughs> but he's such a big deal in Milwaukee. I mean, they have a statue in Milwaukee. I know. Crusher now. So I mean, it's even to this day, you know, and it's 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 phenomenal. Yeah, and and you know that's a big deal. There are not many pro wrestlers globally who actually have statues, especially outside of the ones that WWE has made, you know, ones that have yeah. been commissioned. I mean, they're, they're really only a handful. I mean, he is in, he is in rare company with people like Frank Gotch and, and, you know, and Ricky Dosan and people like yep. that. I mean, that is rare company to be in, uh, especially what I found interesting about the crusher statue was that it's now so far removed from his life and his career. It was, it was encouraging to see, that he was still so well remembered because that sign that that statue has only gone up in the last few years. Yeah. Yeah. It has. It, yeah. They worked with his family when, when working through it and they had, you know, they have a yearly, well, they did have a yearly crusher fest there every year at the side of the statue, you know, to celebrate him. And there was with the polkas and the beer gardens and all that, but, um, and some, you know, like Baron Von Roschke was always there and think guys like that. But, uh, yeah, this was, I don't even know if the statue I don't even know if it's been up five years yet, to be honest with you. It's, right. it's been very recent. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> I keep thinking about, like you said, you know, you think about them today. Yeah, it, It's such a different culture, not even just wrestling culture, but just American culture. You have these two guys with cigars, you know, big guts. They're coming out to polka music, roll out the barrel, you know, with a keg of beer and just uh, dancing in the ring and talking about, you know, in their promos, uh, you know, kissing their girlfriends or whatever they were going to do. And, and they yeah. were uh, incredibly over doing this, you know, not only over, but as dangerous, badass guys that you didn't want to yeah. mess with. Well, they would, they would hit each other in their promos, in their okay. interviews. They would, they, they just couldn't wait to fight. So they would start, they would start hitting each other. And uh, have you ever, have you seen the wrestler, the, uh, the movie, the, not the old wrestler, uh, the, the Vern Gagne pet yes. project wrestler. Oh, yes, in there yes. In, in the where they clear what is it? They clear the office or the bar or whatever it is. And I mean, essentially like these bouncer type in there. <laughs> right. Oh, there's some there's some real gold in that movie. That movie needs to be seen a lot more than it is. And I think I mean, it's public domain. So I think it's pretty yeah. easy to find online. I think the entire movie might be on YouTube uh, and where you've got you've got Ed Asner. As the promoter, you know, because Vern, it's supposed it's like a fictionalized version of the AWA. But of course, Vern can't let on that he's the promoter. So 
there has to be like this fictional promoter. And I actually, uh, when he was alive, he did pass in the past year, I think. But I tweeted once, just out of the blue. To, I saw Ed Asner had a Twitter account. <clears throat> and I tweeted to him to ask him what the experience was like. And he actually answered me. And he talked about how he and Vern Gagne became very close friends from doing that movie. And he said he mentioned, I think he mentioned Crusher and Bruiser and how they were very nice. And they, he also became close with them. I think he might have even played a little golf with those guys, which is incredible to imagine in your head. But uh, that movie's great. It's got the the barroom brawl with the Texas Outlaws, Tick Murdoch and oh, Dusty yeah. Rhodes. That's got to be my favorite part of the movie because you could see yeah. already that Dusty is like a natural, you know? Yeah. yeah. How he didn't it's, have a yeah. bigger movie career, I can't imagine. I mean, he just was awesome. He could have been... He could have been great. Yeah, that is that is a great movie. It's well, my we're talking wrestling movies though. In my heart, my favorite wrestling movie of all time is Body Slam, because that was the one that was hot when I was a child. It, you know, it was it was supposed to be this big thing to me, and to this day, I love that movie. It's a guilty pleasure. Well, it's got Dirk Benedict in it, so I mean, anything that Dirk oh, Benedict yeah. in is in absolutely has got to be good. Uh, of the A Team and Battlestar Galactica and all that. Uh-huh. But that and Pi- Piper, right? Bruno's in it, right? And yep. uh, oh, and think- flares in the crowd, and right. There's so many guys in that crowd scene where they they pan the crowd. But and then, uh, but what is it? Is it Tonga Kid? That's what yes. that's Piper's partner in it. Yeah, I think. And and then the hit. What's the Hill team? Is it uh, is Barbarian? Is it? Oh man, I think I think it is. I also think the guy that became Tijo Khan. Maybe I can't remember who the other guy was in it. There, there are was, definitely Samoans in there. I think it might be. It's more than just Tonga Kid. I think it might be. Yeah. Yeah. And then, I mean, and then Captain Lou, Captain. Right. But they, I can't remember what they called it. It was it changes. It was like, it was weird. It was like Captain Bill or so. They just slightly changed his name or something for the movie. <laughs> I remember that movie being like, it, it seemed to be, you know, obviously like a cash in. Like there were a lot of wrestling movies that started popping up in the mid to late 80s because wrestling was hot. But what I thought was interesting about that movie was I, I don't believe there was any affiliation with the WWF. And yet you have guys in there that I believe at the time were with the WWF like Piper. Yeah, there was. I don't even, I don't even believe the movie got a theatrical release in the end because I believe I've read there's there's all these holdups with the writers and the production crew or company and all these things that delayed it for so long. And it just ended up going straight to video. In the end is what I, I believe I read that it, it or it, either that or it got a very limited theatrical release. It wasn't what they intended to begin with. Right. But, I think uh, that happened with a lot of them, though. I mean, the same thing happened with I Like to Hurt People, where, you know, that was the Detroit wrestling movie where they, they shot all the footage in the 70s. But the movie didn't come <laughs> out until 1985. That is that is such a bad movie, but it is so fun to watch because of. Of, of the seeing the stuff in the arena and the matches and stuff to get that slice. Right. Of, if you take it out of context of the movie to see that at that time, I mean, again, I believe Dusty's in that movie as well, isn't he? Cause he, he was in Detroit at that time. Yeah. yeah so. he, they shot it at the time that he was coming in to feud with Sheik. And again, he's, he's incredible in there. I mean, there's, the, they capture, you know, for as bad as the movie is and, you know, bad in a good way. Um, if you're a fan of, the old territories and wrestling from the seventies. It's like a time capsule. I mean, you're not going to find it is. anything like that. The quality of the footage 
of actual arena matches in Detroit from that era. There's nothing like it. There's nothing like it. And it's amazing. You've got, they captured a Dusty Rhodes promo where he's standing there with Lord Layton and just cutting this incredible promo. And he's got like, they shot backstage. They basically shot backstage vignettes in the style of like what they do now on like on, on Monday Night Raw and things like that, where where it's shot like a movie, you know, where he's like he's yelling at, at New York Raymond, who is this weird figure in Detroit wrestling. And, you know, he's he's talking directly into the camera where, you know, it's not it's clearly, you know, a, a movie shoot, you know. Yeah, that Brian Brian Greenberg was the producer of, of I like the that's that's a guy you should reach out to and try to talk to him because he's he's a fascinating guy to talk to. And he's now uh, he's working on doing a documentary of of when he made the movie. He has so much additional footage and so many pictures and things from that time uh, that it's just it's fascinating. And he has uh, well, I believe don't you I believe you use don't you use the, the song from the movie on here on your show? I yeah. do, and, and, and it's he's with got, Brian's permission, so yeah. Yeah, I, I believe he unearthed some some acoustic demos of some of the songs from the soundtrack and different things. He's got so much stuff that I know he's been working on like a behind-the-scenes type uh, a package to do on the movie, and uh, right. again, <laughs> the movie itself is... I, I, the story of the movie is not good at all, but no. it is such a fascinating... Thing. I mean, the whole Stop the Sheik movement and everything. Right. and Well, the Stop the Sheik it, stuff... It was done later. They they edited it all in so that the yeah. movie would actually have a story because yeah. it has no story. Yeah, it has no story. Yeah. It's just random it footage. But uh, and, and Donald, that's fine with me because it's fascinating to watch. But Brian Greenberg um, was this was the cinematographer on the movie, and he basically inherited the project because Donald Jackson, right. who was the director, passed away. And he was also the right. guy who negotiated the original release in the 80s. But now Brian has all the master stuff. And like you said, he's been he's been trying to put some projects together. And I, I want to have him on very soon because I was so grateful to him that he gave me permission to use the song as the theme song to the show. Yeah. But also, I mean, he's got stuff where I was basically sworn to never share this. I mean, I mean, I can talk about it, but not actually share it. But he has behind the scenes stuff from that movie where you can see all those guys out of character. And I'm talking about the Sheik. I'm talking about Eddie the Brain Creechman. I'm talking about everybody just hanging out backstage as themselves. I've seen it. So it's I mean, it's fascinating. The guys, I mean, because Bruiser was there on. I believe there's Andre was there at the time making some appearances. I mean, Terry Funk, I believe it isn't he in it. Yep. Terry Funk. They have a great there's a great scene with Terry and Dory Funk where they are in the lobby of Kobo Arena and they're waiting to use the payphone. I forget why. And this really felt to me like I don't even think this was planned this way. I think it just happened. There's a fan on the phone, a young girl, like a teenage girl, and Terry just harasses this poor girl until she gets off the phone and runs away. And then they and it it did not feel like it was scripted. And then he grabs the phone and I forget who they were supposed to be calling. I don't know if they were calling, you know, somebody to complain about the chic or whatever. But yeah, I mean, like that was a great moment in time of big time wrestling because like Bobo Brazil is there. There's so Hell many yeah. people. There's the great thing with Andre the Giant where he's in that Jeep. And oh, he, yeah, yeah. 
those guys are waiting for him and he climbs out of the jeep you know and he just goes are you talking are you looking for andre or whatever he yeah says. And like it's like there could be somebody else like it's not him there's this funky music i can't even describe it it's andre the giant driving in a jeep down the highway with like this 70s funk music playing it has to be seen to be believed you got that's yeah. another one to look up yeah. both of those it, movies is there yeah there i mean there are scenes in the movie with Sheik in the back of that uh, back of the limo and they're with with creechman yeah so it ends where this is another reason why it was such perfect timing so um at ernie roth who was abdullah farouk yeah he he was Sheik's first manager he had moved on he'd gone to the wwf and become the grand wizard and eddie creechman was sheik's manager but they actually had an angle which is included in the movie where creechman turned on sheik and he helped ox baker win the u.s title from sheik and then uh farouk had to come back from the wwf and manage the Sheik to get revenge. And they had this whole manager versus manager thing. So there's two things in there. This is the top of the tops. There's a scene where Creechman and the wizard, Ernie Roth, Farouk, they have like a debate with an announcer in between them trying to moderate it. I couldn't do this justice if I tried. It is incredible to watch these guys And Brian told me, Brian Greenberg told me that he had footage of them because they kept breaking each other up because they couldn't stop laughing because it was so ridiculous. But 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 I don't think he still has that footage, but he said they kept having to stop because and do it over because they couldn't stop laughing. But it's so entertaining to watch. And then the movie ends, like you you were saying, with Sheik in the backseat of his limo with Abdullah Farouk. Okay, is it for okay? Yeah, and they're just hyping up the next match or whatever where yeah. Sheik is going to get his revenge, and that's how the movie ends. It's the whole thing is so 70s, everything it about is. it. <laughs> it is, and it, even though it came out in the 80s, that's the crazy thing, they couldn't get it released. It finally came out in 1985, direct to video, same deal, and yeah. The, the company was gone. There was no more big time wrestling. The, yeah. sheik, the sheik had all but disappeared from the American wrestling scene. And here's this yeah. movie that uh, became a fixture of, of video stores. It had to be so weird, you know, for the for the audience they were going for these wrestling fans that had become fans because of the WWF. I mean, they probably didn't know what the heck to make of it. Understandably. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but at that time, you're, you're saying 85, they were, tr- everybody was trying to latch onto anything wrestling. They right. didn't care what it was. It was so hot. They just, <laughs> anything they could find, they, they were put. I mean, all the videos of before they were stars and different things that were coming out and out in the video stores of, you know, trying to get, you know, Savage when he was in Memphis and things like that. And, and, and missing all matches. Do you remember yeah, those? The yeah, missing, missing matches. Yeah. yeah. Those were great. <laughs> I, I found, there's a great video store by me here. I'm going to give them a shout out. It's called the archive and they're affiliated with vinegar syndrome distributors. And they had a whole stash. I bought it all. I'm not ashamed to say of, (laughs) of wrestling videotapes, VCR VHS tapes from the eighties. The reason I bought it is because, you know, you can't, this stuff is not on DVD. You can't find it in this form. You might be able to track down some of the matches on them, but like things like Hulk Hogan, the missing matches, Andre, yeah. the giant, the missing matches. Uh, what was that other one? Uh, Matt mayhem or something with Rick rude on the cover. I mean, there were some, 
classic wrestling VHS tapes from the eighties. And I just snatched them all up. I, I just great stuff to find yeah. back then. Like you said, they were trying to capitalize any way they could. It, it, well, yeah, you, you mentioned vinegar syndrome and on a side, it's a non-wrestling note, but they recently released one of my favorite movies of all time on my, again, another guilty pleasure. Do you remember the, the BMX movie rad? Of course. Tal- Talia Shire is yeah, the mother. And, and Bill Allen. And Oh, I have seen that movie probably a thousand times in my life and buy it in every, I, 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 back in the day, I bought a bootleg version off of eBay just so I could see it and everything else. But yeah, they actually officially released that movie. So when you, when you said vinegar syndrome, it popped me because of thinking of rad. <laughs> I had a friend uh, who at that time when rad came out, he was way into BMX bikes and he forced me to sit down and watch that movie. He was so into it. That was like, that movie was like the Rocky of BMX biking. That, that's it really was. that's why it even made more sense that Talia Shire was even in the movie. It was it, it was almost more like the Karate Kid. It was like in yeah. that vein, you know. It was and, it was the, yeah the paper boy that made it big right in the movie, but and it was but, an HBO staple. Yes, on, that, on that's early. right. And you know, um, I'm very lucky in the sense that Vinegar Syndrome. A lot of some some people listening may know of them. You know, they're known for releasing very hard to find cinema and movies that no one in their right mind would ever remaster and put on Blu-ray. They do it. And they have one retail store on planet earth and it's located within the property of their, of their main like office building. And it happens to be 10 minutes from my house Uh, down in Bridgeport. So I'm very spoiled. I'm jealous. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I know people that make pilgrimages there from all over, like, like all over the country, people drive and try and find it. And it's right down the road from me. So anyway, free yeah. publicity for uh, for the archive. But yeah. um, one last thing I wanted to get to, though, because I, I don't want to keep you forever. And uh, but um, I wanted to just briefly touch on just to get back to Bruiser, um, the 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 what happened after WWA went under because he um, he took a different route from a lot of guys where so many people wound up taking a job with the WWF, he wound up working for WCW, right? In his last years. He did. He, um, yeah, he did. And he made the one appearance with the special referee. I don't, what was it? A Starcade or something with the, the black scorpion deal. And yeah, he right. worked with them, but he was still running spot shows up until just a few weeks before his death. And but didn't he, wasn't he also, he wasn't working like as an agent or anything. It was just like special appearances. Yeah, it was. No, no, he was. Yeah. He was doing some agent stuff too. Okay. But uh, yeah, but yeah, you're right. It was all with WCW behind the scenes type stuff. Um, and I don't know how much or how involved because at that time he was mostly in Florida and kind of in, enjoying that kind of life. Um, his wife was never a fan of the wrestling business. So she was happy when he was stepping away um, and everything. And, but uh, yeah, he was, yeah, he never worked. I, to my knowledge, I don't think he ever had any association with WWF for WWE. I'm outside appearing for him in whatever the fifties and right. getting banned from the garden and all that. But, uh, <laughs> Oh God. Yeah. Well, we didn't even get to that. Maybe we'll, we might have to save that for, for next time. But that, yeah. that whole story of the garden where he kind of, he got the worst of it because he wound up getting into, I think the problem was that he was the only one of the wrestlers that wound up physically getting involved with fans. Yeah. And so the New York State Athletic Commission came down pretty hard on on him. And I don't know if that was also it may have been partly a work, though. I'm not entirely sure, but he never came back to New York. 
I would venture to guess if Dick the Bruiser was involved, there was a level of work with it because <laughs> he, he did not believe in bad press or bad publicity, just like you know, getting into the brawl with Alec Harris and in the bar and wherever it was it Detroit or wherever, um, yeah. leading to their their matches and things. That I mean, that was all a work too. And uh he Bruiser Bruiser liked to work, he liked to get any kind of mainstream press and attention he could. Um yeah, so but those guys were they really did get into trouble. I mean, that that's yeah, yeah, oh, true. Yeah, I true, would true. love to see, um, and to see Dark Side of the Ring, they never go back this far, but I would yeah. love to see a Dark Side of the Ring episode about the Madison Square Garden riot. I mean, it's a crazy story, and there's this, there's a picture that's out there of it's doc, the four guys that were involved in the riot it's Dr. Jerry Graham, Anthony Naraka, Edward Carpentier, and Dick the Bruiser, and they are sitting. In the police precinct where they're, they're being arraigned or whatever, and they're all wearing suits and ties, they look incredibly nonplussed, very unhappy to be there, very much not in character. And I think it ran in all the newspapers. It is a great photograph if, if yeah. people can find it. Yeah. Um, it might be a hard, it might be a hard one for them to do because I don't know. If, I mean, obviously, none of those participants are still around and. I don't know how many guys they could find that were associated at that time to, to talk to about it. Right. Yeah. I'd love it. And uh, you know, I have the same issue with um, what HBO sports does. And I think it's the ESPN. What's their series mm. called? Is it 30 for 30? 30, 30, yeah. Yeah. They re they go back to a certain point and it's like nothing happened before the eighties. You know, I yeah. <laughs> I'd love to see them delve back a little further, but like you said, it's harder to find footage. It's harder to find people who are alive. <laughs> That's part of it as well. But and speaking of which, Bruiser's um, own death occurred in a very unfortunate way, right? He was he was working out. Yep, working out, and uh, I don't know what they or they officially call it an aneurysm. I mean, an aneurysm, yeah, yeah or aneurysm, like a yeah. or like a burst blood vessel, or yeah, something. yeah. I mean, yeah, as old as he was at that time, whatever else, he was still lifting weights and right and everything else. I mean, he was just at home doing it, and uh, yep. I mean, just and, pushing himself too too hard for his age, clearly. Yeah. He, uh, but again, like I said, he was still promoting, still promoting spot shows, still making appearances and uh, still working the occasional bruiser match every now and then, even at that age. And uh, I, I just don't think I don't know if he ever had any intentions on fully giving it up and fully stopping, fully stepping away. Well, that's why he and the Sheik were like the perfect rivals. I mean, there's so much of them that was similar, but it, it's so apropos his his death is is so it's the perfect summation of this, of the guy who, you know, would never quit. He would never stop. He would never stop pushing himself. He would never stop trying to kind of like preserve that, that spot or that youth or whatever you want to call it uh, of his prime years. It, it's just so fascinating to me right up to the very end. The, the Sheik was the same thing. I mean, just yep. such story was a lot of parallels to it. I'm sure Bruiser thought he had another run left in him. <laughs> <laughs> well, I had to say, I, I have to say, I mean, he probably did. And and same thing with Crusher. I thought, well, well, Crusher actually had the wherewithal to officially retire at a certain point. He said, okay, I've had enough. And um, he, he did work a few dates for Vince in the Midwest where they were yeah. trying to, you know, pop some houses in the territories that they were taking over. I always remember being really, um, uh, I don't know what the word is, but, you know, because Bruiser and Crusher were such larger than life guys. But then when Crusher came in to make those appearances for Vince and they did some promos where you've got Crusher and Hulk Hogan together, mm 
Yeah. And the crusher is just so tiny and old next to Hogan. Yeah. It really took a lot of the mystique away, you know? Yeah. Well, I, I've, I've heard with, from guys like, you know, George Shire and, and Mick Carson, some of those guys that know the Minnesota wrestling. I, I heard there towards the end that Crusher was more, much more protective of his image and mm-hmm. didn't want to do appearances and, and go be seen at because, you know, I heard that, you know, Shire and Carson would always tell him, you know, they, you know, Carson would speak to him and say, you know, people want to see you. You could do some of these, you know, do some appearances and just come out there. And, but he didn't want to go out there and not look like right. the Crusher they remembered. And he was a little more protective than a lot of guys are uh, with that. Even to this day. Well, yeah, I definitely do this day. <laughs> I, uh, Dave, I've got to tell you, I, you know, when I decided to start this podcast uh, a few weeks ago or months ago, um, this was exactly the kind of thing that I was hoping it would be. And I can't imagine any other endeavor in life where I could sit down for an hour and talk mainly about Dick the Bruiser. <laughs> this is really a gift. Yeah. And somehow I, I see what I'm hoping from all this is no matter how many episodes you do. I'll be the only mention of an obscure eighties BMX movie uh, on this podcast. That, that's going to be my claim to fame here. I think we'll see. We'll see if that happens, but I, I love challenges it. I, out there. <laughs> I, I love for these to just be exactly what they are, which is casual conversation. So I love it when other things come up, you know, that I don't have a problem with that. I know that John McAdam in Arcadian Vanguard, he's got the uh, trademark on stick to wrestling, but um, yeah. there's certain aspects here to what I do of that as well. So thanks for going with the flow and thanks for talking. Like I said, so much more that could be said about Bruiser and and his life and times. And we'll, we'll have to do it again and talk even more. Absolutely. Sounds good. There you have it, folks. The very nostalgic Dave dynasty and a trip down memory lane and a trip down to Indianapolis and a trip to see Dick, the bruiser. Now who doesn't like that? Who doesn't enjoy that? I hope you did because I sure did. Now, next week, of course, this is the big one, folks. The book comes out next week, Blood and Fire, but as far as Shut Up and Wrestle listeners are concerned, next week, my guest will be Rob Van Dam. That's right, the whole effing show, Rob Van Dam. And uh, the reason I'm having him on, of course, aside from the fact that he's Rob Van Dam, is that he wrote the foreword to Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original Sheik, because he was a trainee of the original Sheik. That conversation's actually already in the can. We did it. So I can tell you, folks, it is a great one, and you're going to love it. That one's coming next week. Also in the weeks to come, I have David Marquez coming up as a guest on the show, the promoter and producer and announcer who uh, you may know from a whole host of things, including the NWA. He's going to be coming on. We've got the longtime wrestling writer, uh, Denny uh, Denny Burkholder, of course, from CBSSports.com these days. Denny Burkholder is going to be coming on as a guest. And lots of other folks just keep listening. And as far as how you are listening, of course, there is the website, suawpod.com to find Shut Up and Wrestle. You can also find it on any podcast platforms like Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Podbean, wherever you get your podcasts. Um, The other stuff, the book, of course, Blood and Fire. You can pre-order on Amazon.com. It does come out on April 12th. And at that point, of course, it's just plain old order. And they will get it to your door within a few days. So there's that. Uh, For Pro Wrestling Illustrated issues, you can go to getpwi.com. 
And for Inside the Ropes magazine, the other magazine that I contribute to, go to InsideTheRopesMagazine.com. As for me, of course, on social media, I can be found on Twitter and Instagram at Brian R. Solomon. Some of you have been following me recently, so uh, take a follow if you're interested in uh, wrestling content and pics of my kids. There's also Facebook. If you go to Facebook, you can find me on um, at Pro Wrestling FAQ. That is the Facebook page where I post most of my wrestling-related content. And, of course, on those social media platforms, you can also find links to my author webpage, which has a lot of information, and I try to keep it as up-to-date as I possibly can. So with that, as always, this has been Brian Solomon asking you to keep those cards and letters coming in and reminding you that I'm not only the president of the Shut Up and Wrestle Club, but I'm also a client. So long, wrestling fans. 